I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's guest on Sporting Misadventures is a big hero of mine. It's David O'Doherty. He's a stand-up comic, a multi-award winning stand-up comic. He's an author. He is a talented musician, but also, as we're going to find out, he's a very talented sports person too. And um, I first I first became aware of him back in the mid-2000s. Uh, been to see him live and he is unbelievably funny. So we're delighted to have him on the show. If you want to check him out, um, he's touring all the time. He'll be in Edinburgh at the Fringe Festival. Um, that's where I'd recommend you go and check him out. But go to his social channels, see where he's playing, and you can you can see him live. He's here already. Oh, I wow. In? I think he yeah. said he wanted to test his microphone, so it might be. Let's see how we go. This is Ben. <laughs> <laughs> we should have this in the podcast, definitely. Just this pause. It's a dramatic yeah. build-up. Listeners on the edge of their seat. We could just do it like uh, charades. What an hour of him acting out. Yeah. First word sounds like two words. It's a film. Always connecting now. Here we go. Here we go. It's looking good. I mean, can you hear hey. I've got sweet new kit here. It's quite uh, embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> is this is this mic working? It's working beautifully. We can hear you loud and clear, but not necessarily. But, oh, no. Uh, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Guys, no, that I, sounds good. I got a SM58. <laughs> it was invented I, in 1958, and it still hasn't been better, the man said. <laughs> well, it's working beautifully. Oh, amazing. Uh, thanks for asking me to do this. Oh, thanks for coming on. Um, that, Chris. Yeah. How are you? Oh, nice. I can't see what it is from here, though. It's, what uh, is it? Stephen Roach, 1987 Tour de France winning bike. No, it's not. It is. Yeah, yeah. It's um, Seriously? No. Yeah. It, it, Roach was a 56. It's a team bike. It's a 59. And it was Urs Zimmerman, I think was his name. Wow. I don't know. It's one of the, yeah, I got it off a guy. I got the frame off a guy in South Africa. It's like a Carrera team frame. It's Bataglin bike, but with that C record, like the original fancy stuff. With the it's, Delta brakes on it, is it? Or, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. The Carrera, <laughs> to me, that, that kit, that's like the, the, there's the actual kit was one of the best of all time with the, the kind of denim shorts, um, you know, that the fake denim shorts and, and oh, just legendary, iconic <laughs> kit. Uh, I, we've gone straight into the full geekery sorry, of cycling. Sorry. We haven't even told people about your, your love for cycling. <laughs> Start wherever you wish. I'm, hey, so I'm David, ready. Actually, I think your love of cycling started almost exactly the same time as me. So my first, my sort of entry into sporting passions my first idol was greg lemond in the 86 tour and then obviously i loved 87 and then the fignon lemond one after that was that was that your entry point too then is that right no so ireland had the one and two cyclists in the world from about 84 onwards so weirdly cycling was just kind of always around i think probably a big factor was when channel four started covering cycling and it was on every night and my dad used to watch it i found it qu quite boring <laughs> initially uh but then yeah the the moment is i think it's stage 21 of the 1997 tour de france where roach lets delgado go up the la plana mountain and then with 5k to go the plan he says in his autobiography was with 5k to go he'd just give it all he'd empty the tank so it was in the era where there weren't that many cameras following the race so there wasn't a camera with roach so the famous phil liggett commentary is but who is this rider it looks like roach it's stephen roach and he collapses at the finishing line and that is the specific moment where i was like oh i'm gonna become a cyclist that was, was it all, it was like foggy or the, the clouds, you couldn't actually see who it was and he just emerged and he was in, you know, collapse and he had the oxygen mask on and was taken away. But 
crucially, he'd only lost a few seconds to Delgado yeah. for the overall. Yeah, well remembered. Yeah. Oh, he, legendary. He yeah. was going to, he was, yeah, there was, there was one time trial left where he could make up the minute that, so Delgado, if you see Delgado at the yellow jersey presentation, he's not smiling as he gets the yellow jersey because he knows he's ruined now. His plan is foiled. And uh, yeah, Roach makes up the time then at the time trial. And, you know, it was in an era, I guess it's similar to Scotland, Chris, in that there weren't many champions in Ireland. Like we used to win the Eurovision. Honestly, we used (laughs) to bring the Eurovision. And that was about the extent of it. Our football team hadn't got good because it only got good with Jack Charlton in the late 80s then. So cycling was... Yeah, God. Yeah, was, Sean was Kelly. Sean one. Kelly as well as as uh, Stephen Roach. Yeah, I mean, that season, Roach wins the Tour of Italy, the Tour de France, and then Propos- so Roach dedicates the World Championship to Kelly. He's going to win it for Kelly because Kelly broken his shoulder in the Tour de France. And then Roach, by accident, finds himself in the last breakaway. And because he's not a sprinter, Everyone just lets him go. He he does one of those crazy uh, breaks where he goes up by the up by the wall, basically just along on the narrow side by the barriers. And they're all the sprinters are all watching each other, and it's that insane thing where Roach can't believe it. And the poster <laughs> I had on my wall was Roach with his arms in the air, and in the following group, Kelly with his arms in the air. As well <laughs> yes, because they've done it, and yeah, that's the. That's 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 my iconic sporting image, I think. I remember that shot, actually. And it's it's right what you're saying, though, because like when you're growing up, I think it was the same in Britain, not just in Scotland and Ireland. I think across across the, the board, there were so few champions. There were, you know, we, we had very few that were winning at international level and, and the, the funding wasn't really there. There wasn't the, the national support from the government or from whoever to, to fund young athletes coming through. So whenever you had anybody in any sport, that had a chance of winning anything. I used to sit and watch the Commonwealth Games and I'd watch, you know, Lawn Bowls if Scotland yeah. had a chance of a bronze medal. Um, you know, I'd sit and watch any, literally anything. Yeah. And, and it, it was just, you know, it was exciting. And it, that's why there's, I, I think for me, certainly growing up, so many standout moments, so many iconic sporting moments that are etched in your memory. Tom McKean, you know, winning the European 800 metre championships, Liz McColgan at the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. It's just these moments that you feel everybody sat and watched the TV and then went into school the next day and talked about it. And, and and it inspired you to want to be active and to go out and to emulate your heroes. Yeah, completely. It, I mean, in Ireland, it wasn't even winners. It was John Tracy came second in the marathon at the 84 Olympics. I remember that because we hadn't won a medal for years. And loads of people wanted to become distance runners then. <laughs> it, it was small. It was how these small things. Eamon Coughlin won the 1500. We had a bunch of 1500 meter runners for some reason. Ireland was very good at indoor 1500 in particular. So I, uh, my my father's side, they were obsessed with athletics. And that's I ended up doing triple jump then in school. That's another story. But we watched all of these athletics. Do you remember what, like, the, watching the diamond meet in Zurich with mm. the whole family and where it would cut from the javelin to the 15 or the 5,000 and beyond, and they would cut to the shot put. And you'd be like, put the five thousand back on. Sammy O'Sullivan's <laughs> in the five thousand. Yeah, yeah. But you so your parents were, were were sporting, had a sporting pedigree, didn't they? They were very successful themselves. Well, fifty percent of them were. Uh, <laughs> so my dad's a jazz musician, this famous Irish and international jazz pianist, Jim. And so we're expecting a great jazz musician at some point in the future. And my mother <laughs> played tennis and hockey for Ireland in the sixties. So they were also expecting a great athlete to emerge. They met through tennis, didn't they? Is there a story that? Yeah. Yeah. My, um, my dad was an umpire at a tennis match in Lansdowne tennis club in the early sixties and met my mother and claims that he fell in love with her then. But mysteriously, they didn't speak for three years after that. (laughs) 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 In a pub. And so, yeah, in, in my family, it was mum pushing the sporty stuff. So it was m- my brother and I just always had competitions, you know, be it keepy-uppy or we used to have a, you'd put a, like a doormat in the kitchen 
and there were three steps up to the hall. It was all carpeted. And so you could chip a golf ball, like incredibly dangerous stuff. But <laughs> it was constant competitions with the, my brother was six years older than me, so he would win every single one of them. But uh, that's where, and that came from mum because mum would always be, you know, let's go in the garden and hit like a shuttlecock with two badminton rackets or whatever when you're on your holidays from school and you were bored so I definitely get my sport from that dad watched all sport and then I also vividly remember being put in nets when I was about five and my dad crossing shots to my brother who had headed past me and I remember they would both celebrate slightly too much <laughs> in full-size football goals with me being like, I don't even know what direction I'm supposed to be facing here. But you inherited a bit of uh, but your, your dad's musical skill as well, didn't you? I mean, a lot of your comedy is is musically based. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I have something of it, but like he's of a generation that will never exist again where like in the 60s, he would work with bands where there would be a record player on the bus. He would get like a the first copy of an Elvis record would be sent over and he would have a piece of paper and using his ears would write out the music so that they could play it that night. And then the idea was you would get it in the charts before Elvis had officially released it wow. in Britain or Ireland. So, yeah, it's it's... He has this ability to write music at the speed that you'd you'd write a, a message you were leaving uh, for someone. And yeah, which doesn't happen anymore because now you can get computers to do all of that. So it's just this crazy musicality. Yeah. So he spent his life writing these jazz compositions uh, uh, that no one will remember. But my dad <laughs> also wrote the song that you had to learn in school about how to cross the road that everyone of my generation knows. It's called the Safe Cross Code. So it's funny that <laughs> when my father, he's 85 and he's still gigging, and whenever he passes away, people will be like, yeah, the jazz guy, oh yeah, whatever. The guy who wrote the Safe Cross Code, and people will be like, I love that song. <laughs> How does it go? Are you able to give us a little mini rendition? Yeah, so I do remember the, the uh, British Cross the Road one was Stop, Look and Listen. Yeah. Whereas ours mm -hmm. managed to have, I think, eight steps in it. <laughs> and it being Ireland, it was sung by uh, Brendan Grace, who went on to be the priest in Father Ted, who yeah. insists on playing jungle music through a boombox <laughs> oh, yeah. in their house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the first steps are, remember one, look for a safe place. Two, don't worry, stop and wait. Three, let all the traffic pass before you cross the road. I just remember thinking, in the UK, it only takes three steps to cross the road. But here we are waiting to do eight. No wonder we're lagging behind economically in the 80s. It takes so long to cross the road. <laughs> was that a cool thing then that your dad had written that song for your schoolmates? Or was it an embarrassing thing? I don't know which way it would, it would feel. That nah, was cool. Yeah. It was very cool. The, the you know, it was, it was two channel Ireland. And so my father played the music on the big children's television program. And my brother and sister remember they had a joint birthday party when they were about six. And my dad, because he'd been working on this TV show, which was puppets. It was kind of like, um, what was it, uh, Grot Bags and Emu. It was that kind of a thing, except mm -hmm. an Irish version of it. And dad got the cast to come over to our house for my brother and sister's joint birthday party, which wow. I think, uh, yeah, I remember the other parents just being like, oh, like, this one, this is like having the Millennium Falcon in the back garden and the cast of Star Wars in two channel Ireland. This was effectively our Star Wars. And uh, yeah, so dad, dad could be relied upon to to pull out a big one. That's the first thing I'll be doing after I've, uh, we finish chatting. I'm going to go and get on YouTube and check it out. <laughs> yeah, it's, one of, it's the catchiest theme music ever, Chris. Your, your friends, I mean, their parents must have really hated, hated you for that because they've, you've raised the bar massively. Every other party after that is going to be a step down. Yeah, surely. exactly. Going bowling. And you're sorry, are the greatest <laughs> ten pin bowlers in the world coming here? Are there <laughs> are there ten pin bowlers off the off the TV going to arrive here? Yeah, that was that my, that was my dad. My dad, God, for my um eighth birthday, my father he got tickets to there was a kids play, not really a panto, more a Christmas play, 
and we all went to see it. And at the end, we were all, oh, that was amazing. And my dad said, I didn't like it, but I'm going to write you a play. And this time next year, we're going to go and see it. And my so that was my dad. He wrote the play that was in the Irish National Theatre in 1985 then. And me and my birthday party went to see that and got to hang out with everyone backstage. Wow. I mean, it sounds like a glamorous showbiz life, but it was the sort of <laughs> Irish version of it anyway. What does your dad think of uh, of the text song? My dad is just just to let people just just for people who who have, may not have heard this. Um, actually, it was my wife introduced me to you in terms of she'd seen you at the Edinburgh Festival, and I just met her. This must have been two thousand and six ish, and she was going to see one of your shows, and and I said, "Oh, I've not heard of David O'Doherty. Oh, he's amazing. He's absolutely brilliant." And she said, "Watch this link," and it was on YouTube, and I'd never seen it before. And that was that was in our we'd only just met really, and I yeah. thought, you know what, she's this is the girl for me. She's <laughs> she's got she's got a great sense of humor, and we get you know the, the humor's got to be right, hasn't it, in relationships? And and you can often tell whether someone is going to be a, like a long term partner if they like the same sort of comedy stuff. So yeah, the text song, it's I mean it's it holds up, doesn't it? It's one of the, yeah, one of the it's musical comedy little clips I've ever seen. Well, it's a funny song, Chris, because so it's about. It's called Sent a Text to the Person the Text Was About is the full title of it, which I thought was a funny thing. I think I wrote it in about 2000, yeah, about 2006 around then. And it was just a funny thing that I'd noticed happening with some of my friends. But the thing is, about once every every year, there's a major government scandal involving, usually involve people hitting reply all on group <laughs> emails and journalists being involved. And they always, the Sydney Morning Herald recently, uh, an Australian politician did it and they had my song there <laughs> as sent a text to the person <laughs> the text was about. So I like that it's become a sort of cultural touchstone. If that's all I give to society, then yeah, I'm happy enough. No, it's awesome. And it's, uh, yeah, as I say, I've watched it recently just because I knew you were coming on and it's, oh, it's it's still as funny as ever. <laughs> so going back going back to your earlier sporting achievements, I mean, we've sort of just flashed over the cycling side of things. But, you know, you were a really talented sportsman as a, as a young boy, weren't you? You played, you played rugby, you played golf, you were a triple jumper, you were uh, an angler as well, I believe. I, do you know what? I mean... <sighs> This is why I feel bad for elite sports people such as yourself, Chris, because you'll never understand true mediocrity. And by that, I mean, you'll never know what it's like. Like one of the main things I got from sport was I played with some actual greats. I played with uh, rugby uh, against Dennis Hickey and with Dennis Hickey a lot, who went on to play for the Lions and Leinster and Ireland and Brian O'Driscoll. And so to actually realize oh, this is actually it. You know, in that I tried to stay fit and I tried to get faster and I tried to make my handling better. But then people just came along who had all that. And then this other thing, which was, I guess, in the sense of of rugby or football, it's actually an ability to see space and to see the pitch, not in this sort of like panic of like, I've got this. Okay, try and do something good that the coaches won't mind. But instead, just to be like, I guess it's how I feel about stand-up now because I've done stand-up for so long. I'm comfortable enough that whatever, I sort of like it when things go wrong. And that sort of comfort in chaos is something that I definitely got from those amazing uh, athletes that I was lucky enough uh, to play with. The cycling was the dream, but then the problem with cycling was it takes a long, I don't know if you know this, Chris, it takes a long time to do all the training <laughs> and everything. And so I was getting up before school to do some rides. This is when I was about 14. And then I got called up to like an Ireland schoolboy rugby thing. So I was trying to ride before school and then run and do handling after school. And so, yeah, I, I, I let the cycling slide then. With the you, should, you should take up track cycling, David, because, you know, we don't have to do big hours. We sit around in the track centre, we talk, we have, you know, a bit, a bit of banter, as they say, and then you go up and do like a 10 second effort and then you come back down and you sit for half an hour and you talk and you wonder about, pop to the loo, come back, have something to eat, do another effort. You might do four efforts in a day. You know, that, that's that's the kind of life that you, you should be leading. So I don't, I, I'm not in any way comparing myself to you, but I am 
a very so my my mom is six one and my dad is five four, and so I have one of the strangest builds where I'm six foot, but apparently I have the back of a six foot eight man and these tiny little penguin legs underneath. <laughs> Uh, so my long before I ever met you, my thighs were being talked about as Chris Hoy legs. <laughs> but the problem with these legs, Chris, is, you know, I wanted to write up Alp Duez with Pedro Delgado. It's very hard to do that mm. when at your trimmest ever, you're about 50 in stone. <laughs> no, I know that. I know that feeling well. I know that feeling well. But, you you know, going back to your rugby and you mentioned Dennis Hickey there, there's there's video proof that you basically stopped uh, a, a, a try in when you, I think was it under 15s, under 14s in the junior, was it junior cup? Yeah. Final? Is that it? I mean, the reason the Irish uh, rugby team are so good at the moment is because of all of this uh, investment, like Dublin and Leinster in particular has this obsession with this under 15 and this under 18 trophy the junior and the senior cup and my school had never won it and we won it in 1991. I I didn't understand how much it meant. It was like old boys crying and coming up to you and trying to buy you pints and you saying, I'm 14. I can't accept this. But yeah, we we slayed the Giants. I mean, it's so tragic that I'm telling an Olympic champion about a rugby match in 1991. But uh, yeah, it was a team where Six of them ended up going pro when they left school then. And they were going to beat us at a canter. But we did the classic, was, I'm not going to say a barbarians thing of throwing it around too much. But I remember we had a few, we just kept running it at them. It was the old trick of sort of Japan in the 2015 World Cup of just run it, run it, run it. And they would keep thinking we were about to kick it, all of that. I nailed Dennis Hickey. I'm going to say he was never the same again after it, <laughs> although he did go on to play for the Lions. <laughs> I think what I he did. could have achieved, though, if, if he had you know. <laughs> but yeah, it is an amazing experience at the age of 14 to play in front of, like, we used to get nine, ten thousand 10,000 people at those matches and all singing, all cheering. And it was another 30 years before I played with Flight of the Concords in front of that many people. So, uh, I mean, it, it is, I hate to say this to any retired athlete, but the beauty of stand-up comedy, not that it's similar in any way, the the only, the way it's better than a pro sports career is that you don't have to stop. You can just keep going. You know, I bet when you had to retire, like when O'Driscoll had to retire in, in rugby, his brain, he said he was able to see stuff that he couldn't see in his 20s and understand tactics better. Whereas in this, because you know, it doesn't take much physical exertion to hold up a microphone and play a tiny keyboard. Chris, I'm going to be able to keep doing this for ages. Oh, I know. It's it's funny you should say that. I think there's there are sports that you can, you may not compete at the highest level forever, but like think about golf. You yeah. get to play the Masters Tour, you get to keep going. Even motorsport, there's guys, you retire from top level, but you can still race in at Goodwood at, you know, certain events and, and still keep that passion going. But um, yeah, it's it's a tough sport cycle. And if you stop, even for yeah. a couple of months, and you get back on the bike, you know you could be a Tour de France winner in August or July. Two months later, if you haven't touched the bike, you'll be struggling. So it's yes. it's use it or lose it, and it's it's yeah, it's brutal. But I do, yeah. yeah. Do you know it's funny you talk about comparing stand up to sport, and yeah, I've, you know, having chatted to a few comedians so far on this podcast, I'm a, there are clear parallels between the two, and you know that that ability to think under pressure to to perform in front of a crowd to have to, to sort of raise your game for you know for that that one moment for that that one chance when you are um yeah. when it really counts you know you can be funny with in front of your mates in the in the pub but actually doing it in front of could be thousands of people um you know it, it takes a lot yeah I, I i'm i don't want to claim the entire success of the Irish rugby team just winning the Grand Slam and now being one of the favourites for the World Cup. But uh, Andy Farrell got me in. The the coaching group got me in to ask. Just I like I think it's part of possibly the reason for their success is that they've just been looking to strange places to to try and and get an alternative take. You know because I think that game is full of a lot of people who speak in management 
chat and, you know, about peak performance and all the rest of it. Whereas I don't know if I was much use, but the the parallel that I saw was that you've got a job to do as a stand-up comedian. And it doesn't really matter if you've just puked in the dressing room before the gig because you've got a sore tummy or if your girlfriend's just broken up with you an hour ago. You've got a show to do and people have all got babysitters to come and see you. So uh, I, I'm not claiming all responsibility for their victories, but... Uh, just 90%. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Or did you say you gave a talk to the team? I didn't give a talk to the team. I gave a talk to the coaches. So when they was that? Before, before this championships or a previous year? Or? Before, uh, but just before COVID, actually, wow. yeah. So what, did you, but, what knowledge did you impart to them? or what? Did, like, you, you touched on some of it, but that must be slightly daunting if you're a rugby fan and suddenly these sort of superstars, because yeah. Andy Farrell was a superstar. Yeah, no, I mean, in, in as much as... I thought it was hilarious that they'd ask me in. I'm friends with Vinnie Hammond, who's one of the secret heroes of the success of Irish rugby, who's the data analytics guy, who's who's like a PhD nerd. He's the guy you see in any shot of the coach's box for the Irish rugby team. He's on a laptop. Sometimes he's got headphones on as well. And he's he's noticing things. He's just spotting all these patterns. And he worked with the Lions then as well. And... Yeah, I, I, he asked me to come in just because he and I are friends. And we've always talked about gigs and uh, he's, he likes comedy first and foremost. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I found, it, I found it very interesting how open they were or just how many questions they had about. I, like, I, I didn't have a presentation prepared or anything. I was like, guys, I don't know why I'm here. Ask me anything. But we ended up talking. And I mean, there's one thing about stand-up and high-level sport is that, you know, at low-level sport, particularly with rugby, the coaches always say, think about the first, your your first contact, think about the first big tackle or think about the first pass you do. But the reality is when you go out, very often you miss your first tackle or you drop your first ball. And the problem is you spent the whole week thinking about that. Whereas in stand-up, you don't do that because maybe you'll come out and improvise something and it maybe won't go anywhere. You can't then go into your shell. You have to have a sort of a, a robust enough outlook for the whole thing. And I guess a sense of self-confidence as well. And geez, that's certainly what that team have now because they're just trying stuff all the time. You know, they're going down to 14 men and still trying to chip the ball over wingers' heads and all the rest of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's possibly the most successful team now in in Irish sport. Yeah, they're certainly uh, performing at an incredible level and with the confidence and that assurance. But yeah, can you not come and talk to the Scottish team as well? <laughs> we're doing all right. They're not quite there yet, you know. Uh, Ireland and Scotland and South Africa are all in the same World Cup group now, which is ridiculous because they, mm. they compiled the groups three years ago or something where I think we were all, South Africa were good and Ireland and Scotland were the same sort of bad. So, yeah, we're all in together now. So, no, I can't divulge any of these secrets to my uh, <laughs> to my Gallic cousins. Not yet. After the World Cup, maybe. We'll have to get Kevin Bridges down to speak to the Scottish team. Not sure <laughs> it'll have the same effect, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> it is a, it's, a, it's a funny thing, though, isn't it? About, like, I love this Scotland team. And there's something about Finn Russell is the out half who just does his own thing. And he smiles when something goes wrong. And there's something very, he's got a self-confidence and an assurance that is the opposite of the sort of robo-drilled South African teams. And mm -hmm. I think that's what I really always aspired to. Like I, I the, the players, like the, the George Best type player who just has it all and is out there to, tr to win, but also to have a good time and put on a bit of a show for the people. Maybe that's why I didn't, make it in the high level of sport Chris I just I want to put a show on you're a showman hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is called Sporting Misadventure. So far, what we've heard really is your amazing success. There must have been, there must have been some moments where it didn't all work out. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well... My rugby era coincided with rugby going pro. And let's just say I never enjoyed the gym or the idea of the gym. So in a year, in that 95, 96 season, people went from 13, 14, 15 stone to 18, 19 stone. And the injuries went from twisted ankle to dislocated knee. And that's uh, when my rugby career ended on a Lansdowne rugby football uh, pitch uh, high in the Dublin mountains in about six inches of mud. And I remember lying there because like once you drop down to I was playing for the second team of the club, which there's a lot of 38 year old lads who had played international in the 80s and are still having a bit of a laugh with it. And it's not nice to be hit by those guys. And then for five of their friends to then run over you while you're face down in the muck. And that's when I launched my uh, football career uh, playing soccer. And let's just say that was a lot less successful. <laughs> <laughs> and what about cycling? Did you, never, did you ever compete or take part in any racing at all or take it any further than just being a hobby? No, I... I uh... I, I did time trials for one seat. You could only when you were thirteen. It was just time trials. Mm -hmm. Road racing only kicked in. I think for under fourteens in Ireland. So I joined Orwell Wheelers, which was uh, Roach's old club, mm -hmm. and uh, what? Yeah, did that for one season. But then, as regards going back to it, see the problem, Chris. You never had this. Was that I went to university then, and although I was working in a bike shop, I discovered stand-up comedy and with it pints <laughs> they go hand in hand. things started to drift there a little bit from a, an elite sporting point of view but i did get to make a cycling tv show for channel 4 in 2021 and so technically i have been paid for cycling but that is cycling at very low speed up welch mountains with grayson perry <laughs> technically you're a pro cyclist Technically, thank you. I am a pro cyclist. Yeah. Well, I, I I raced in Ireland back in 1994, and it was actually my only ever stage race, road stage race. The Ross, was the, it? The... No, it was the junior junior tour of Ireland. It was right, yeah. And I so I was doing a little bit of endurance track cycling as well as some of the sprint stuff, but also trying to do road racing too. I was a junior. I didn't really know what my niche was going to be. Yeah. And it was straight after the National Track Cycling Championship. So I basically hadn't done any road training up until this junior tour of Ireland. And I went out there and got absolutely destroyed. And it was <laughs> it was basically the, the moment where I realized, you're not going to be a Tour de France rider. You're not going to be a road rider. Stick with the track. Um, <laughs> but, but it was like, so you were only allowed, there was a, a cap on the duration or the length of the races for juniors. I think it was 65 miles was the longest you could race. Yeah. Um, by regulations. And, uh, but obviously they had all these little, um, like it was sponsored by the credit union and they had all these different little villages and towns. They wanted to, to get as many of them to have the, the, the race come through yeah. their, their little villages. So they thought about it and obviously they thought, well, we can just have like a, a neutralized zone for maybe 20 or 30 miles yeah. where you're riding along. But nobody told us that it was, the race hadn't started. So we rolled out and it would be, hell for leather the irish boys would be on the front going absolutely like like yeah. a steam train at the front really really hard racing and then after about an hour suddenly there'd be a, a stop you know everyone would stop and there'd be a big bunch standing in the road saying what's going on and then someone would get out of the car get a checkered flag and drop the flag and say off you go <laughs> and i was like what have we been doing for the last hour like no that was that was the neutralized zone so you'd be racing for 
instead of 65 miles, it could be up to 100 miles as a junior every day. And it was it was so tough. But I mean, I, I look back now fondly, um, but it was it was a tough old week. But yeah. maybe maybe I needed that moment to realize this isn't this isn't for me and I need to stick to the track. Uh, well, there's not much of a track scene here. There's a track near where I am, but it's one of those 1930s tracks where it's uh, not very steep and maybe a kilometer all the way around. But no, I once I was working in the bike shop, I mean, there is something weird that happens when you work in a bike shop because I, so I still love bikes. I'm speaking to you from a house with 17 bikes in no. us at the moment. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. Chris. So Wikipedia is incorrect and it says 14 on Wikipedia. I, you know, Wikipedia is always right, obviously. You know what? It's way more than that. I'm just trying to, <laughs> I tried to think of the most normal number. And probably the <laughs> listeners are going, oh yeah, 17, David. There's something about working at a bike shop where you go in with this sort of, Ah, uh, I'm going to be challenged here mentally. People will like mid race be coming in and being like, "Can you tune these Camagnolo gears?" And then the reality of working in the bike shop is basically people come in and go like, "There's a squeak coming from my. <laughs> I think my bike's haunted." <laughs> if you ever want to destroy your love of bicycles and beautiful Italian uh, craftsmanship, no. But I I sustained it through that. I always rode. Uh, like I started stand up when I was 21. And then after my first Edinburgh, which was in 2000, I brought a bike to France and then cycled up the Maritime Alps and around there mm. uh, with, a t with a tent on the back. Just just wow. ha having crack with a, a friend. Yeah. Now that is, that is, we don't have mountains that go on for 18 kilometers. That's for sure. So that, the, that, that was a real eye opener then as well. And the stand-up started to go well immediately. Uh, Grayson Perry was interesting talking to him because he had his art going, but he was also UK amateur mountain bike champion. He was he was one of the guys who set up in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, when there was no mountain biking wow. uh, championships in the UK. Yeah, he told me a really funny story of he made a trophy because there was no, because the competition was there was the, the the body didn't exist to set up the competition, so he made a trophy that I think was just a load of penises attached <laughs> together on bikes, and uh, the guy who won it was like, "Oh, what's this?" And Grayson was like, "I made you a trophy," and he's like, "Yeah, whatever," and he just left it behind after the presentation. <laughs> That trophy would now be worth about 80 oh. grand if you're mad at <laughs> I thought you were going to say that you made the trophy for himself because no one had given him a trophy for his, <laughs> his own achievement. Yeah, no, I've, I've no. not got any, any dildo trophies at home. <laughs> not, that, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> but, um, Do you still go out I'm, on the bike now? Do you still ride when you can? When yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go out for a ride this afternoon now. I mean, it was one of the ways I got through the pandemic. I, I live in the centre of Dublin. And the Phoenix Park is in Dublin, which is a, uh, I think it's, I think it's 1500 acre park land. And you can either ride it uh, on the road or on bike paths, or you can go off road and ride cyclocross around the edge of it. And it was within my whatever five mile radius because you weren't in the worst parts of the pandemic. You, you weren't allowed to go too far. So yeah, every day I went up there and I was probably fitter than I've ever been. <laughs> in the in the worst part of the of the pandemic but yeah that was it, it, it was great and i also fixed everyone's bike on the road for some reason i well there was nothing else going on there were no gigs going on i still have all my tools and i still remember how to do it all so uh yeah there's a hell of a lot of people riding around dublin at the moment with david had already repaired bicycles it's funny when you're talking about working part-time and you're in the bike shop and it, it, it it's so true. You imagine when you start in working that you're going to be dealing with all these cool bikes that you've always wanted to own or to ride. And I, because I, I was a similar thing when I was a student or when I was still at school. And then when I was a student, I had a part-time job in a secondhand bike shop in Edinburgh. And my job basically was they'd buy a bike, you know, someone would come in and go, oh, do you want to buy this bike? And it would be rusty and it would be absolutely knackered. And I, my job was to sit with steel wool and a bit of you know brass or whatever and basically get rid of all the the rust off the rims um you know put new brake cables and gear cables in new bar wow. tape 
and then they would double the price, you know, sell it, buy it for 10 quid, sell it for 20 quid or whatever. And that was, that was what I was doing day in, day out. And, it, and, and also GT86, you know, the spray, basically yeah. spray that over everything, makes it look shiny for about 10 minutes and it goes all horrible. <laughs> uh, but it was, that, was, that was my job, you know, day in, day out. And you think, oh yeah, that's, and then to cut, to cap it all off, I was getting paid at that point. I remember I was getting paid two pounds fifty an hour. Oh, that was back in sort of nineteen ninety two, nineteen ninety three, into nineteen ninety four, and uh, that was lower than the the minimum. Well, there wasn't actual uh, minimum wage, but basically, I think I should have been getting paid like four pounds an hour. But so I, I challenged the guy about it and said, "Oh, there's a you know bike shop um, around the corner." You know, talking oh. to the guy, and he, he's going to pay me four pounds an hour, and he's like, "Oh, you mean uh, John?" Yeah, I'm friends with John. <laughs> and I was like, he's called my bluff. You know, I kind of went pale. I goes, I can get him a phone now and see. And he's like, um. <laughs> and he sort of laughed and said, okay, how about I give you £3.25? I was like, okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, but then I spent I spent all the money in the book. So I'd get, I'd get my pay pack in cash and I would just go no. in the shop and go. And I, was, and I wasn't smart enough to go, well, that, that is your retail price. What can you give me? For, you know, so, so I basically you give me the money and then I would just give it right back to him and walk out with, you know, I don't know, a saddle or something. And it, it just like, God, yeah. I was working that all summer for a couple terrible, of bike components. Terrible economics by you. I know, That's I know. an absolute shambles. Awful, awful. But yeah, I guess it's, it's the ultimate endorsement for these bike components. If I could remember what they were or the brands, I could go and say, well, do you know what? That shows... <laughs> That shows I'm a proper ambassador for your for your brand. Willing do, to work all summer for it. There is something beautiful about fixing bikes. So I, if I, I mean, this is the thing that all my friends would say about me. If I have, if I'm at a party and I have three, a house party and I have three drinks and there's a bike sitting in the hall that's with something obviously wrong about it. It's just, right, have you got a pliers and give me a kitchen knife and I'm going to fix these gears right now. I just... I just love fixing bikes. Like it's just the fact that a bike can be improved by about 300%, sometimes in two minutes. You know, when someone's like, oh, I think I'd have to get a new bike. And it's like, no, you just, your your brakes are loose and you don't even need a tool to fix that. How can you not see this now? Yeah, that is. Yeah, I think that's, that's well, the, the sport itself, particularly with the 90s where it went so weird, I did like pro cycling. I, yeah, I, I, I stopped watching it, but then I remained absolutely obsessed with bikes. And it's funny, some of the bikes that I have around here are pro bikes from that exact era where I was utterly obsessed. So that's a that's a Stephen Roach uh, 1987 Tour de France bike behind me. And there's a, a Gianni Bugno, uh, like 1991 Giro d'Italia bike upstairs in the in the sitting room. And then a whole load of really bad bikes as well that I can just cycle around town. In um, in Edinburgh every year, I've done the fringe now 20 something times. I buy a bike on the first day and I ride it for the whole festival, try not to get a single taxi, ride <laughs> everywhere. And then in the last gig, I give it to the audience member with the best reason why they should have it. Right. And it started off as someone would just stand up and be like, oh, I've just come to university here and I don't have a bike and they would get it. But as time has gone on, people know there's a bike getting given away. So people have like written poems and learned off songs. And uh, yeah, I remember when, when you're a guy, God, this is terrible. When you're a guy <laughs> had written a song about why he should have my bike. And it wouldn't be a particularly fancy bike, but it'd be a reasonable enough. I, I, I like old mountain bikes because they're cheap. The old 26-inch wheel mountain bikes are real cheap now, but and they're cool bikes. And uh, he said, he did his song about why he should have a bike and everyone clapped. And then uh, a woman tentatively put her hand up at the end. And uh, I said, why should you have the bike? And she said, uh, I was adopted. And everyone cheered and she got the bike. So, <laughs> it's a time when I get to be the king and decide who gets to have my my bike. You know, when you talk about the 26-inch wheel mountain bikes from the old days, you're so right. I, I saw a Klein attitude recently. Ugh. And that was like the the bike that, you know, I'd look at. In the, I'd never actually seen one in the real world. I'd only ever stared at pictures of it in magazines. And and it just someone just rode past in the street on one recently and I couldn't believe that I almost chased after them to go and 
have a look at it. And it was in mint condition too. But my dad um, cleared up the garage at home and he found my old racing mountain bike. I had this old off-road Proflex. Wow. One of the first full suspension bikes from the, the early 90s. It had the, the magnesium rock shocks, the early gold Ugh. rock shocks, uh, a flex stem. Do you remember the flex stems? Yeah. Early suspension. And it was in a right old, it was in parts basically. And he got it redone and he cleaned it up and he'd spent a lot of time doing it up and gave it to me for my birthday as a, as a present. Wow. Um, and it's still, it's amazing because it's as it was when I used to race on it as a junior and it's got so many memories. And I was like, I almost don't want to go out on it and ride it in case I break bits on it because it's probably a bit old now. Yeah. But anyway, I hung it up in the shed, just a, a wooden shed in the garden. Do you remember last summer, the heat, there was a, a ridiculous heat wave where yeah. it was like mid-30s. I came in one day and, and it's like the, the suspension part of it was just an elastomer, polymer, um, you know, a bit of rubber that, that acted yeah. as the, 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 the kind of bumper. It had melted and there was like a puddle of yellow on the floor. And I thought, <laughs> at first, I didn't know what it I thought like it was, I don't know, like a rat had been sick or something it was like i didn't know what it was and i went over and sort of touched it with a, a stick and it was hard and i realized shit that's rubber and it, it the whole thing had melted i looked up on and realized it had come from the bike and the bike there was no where the elastomer bumper used to be there was nothing there it just completely melted down so yeah i guess parts of I mean, it have lasted but not not that bit yeah well the the bike that i rode in that channel four series last year was the bike that I got for my 14th birthday because it's a it's a Reynolds 531 frame, which I think 531 was originally, I think it was Spitfires. It was it was tubing used mm. on some Second World War aircraft by by TI Rally. And they just kept, you know, pros were still riding 531 into the 80s. And it's now it's still regarded as this great touring uh tubing. So while your bike melted, Mine's still going. <laughs> Mine's absolutely fine. And and I do think, not wishing to get too nerdy here, but... Uh, please do, of, please do. I love it. All of these fancy carbon bikes that everyone's riding, it, they're all going to corrode in 20 years' time. All of the aluminium bikes that people were riding in the generation before that in the 90s and early 2000s, they become dangerous after a while because the aluminium's so thin. And what's going to be left? My Stephen Roach 1987 Tour de France winning bike. These things are are bomb proof so long as they don't melt in a Scottish shed. <laughs> the only it's the only little asterisk. The true those. test. Of your of your seventeen bikes, David, do you still ride all of them at some point, or are some just gathering dust? Or no, they they are all good to go. No, I'd say there's ten of them good to go on any given day, and then I went through an obsessive period of, I'd see a picture of a bike, uh, particularly old pro bikes. And, you know, you can go, you can find these parts for not that expensive if you spend hours and hours trolling through uh, Belgian buy and sell magazines. And so, yeah, some of them are specific uh, era bikes. So that uh, I have a Le Mans, the bike ver that's the bike he won the 89 Tour de France on. And then I also, there used to be in the Tour de France, these yellow bikes called Mavic neutral service bikes, which yeah. was if your, if your team bike broke and your team car wasn't around, they gave you just one of these beautiful French and it's all French componentry. And they're quite rare. And I have one of those as well. These are all good to go. Wow. And it's funny when you're cycling it around a city like Dublin, which has a fair few old school bike heads, a legacy of the Roach Kelly Martin Early, Paul Kimajira, you know, once a cycle, someone will just roll down a window and just, just like be like, you know, mention some obscure Stephen Rooks, 1989 Tour de France. And you're like, good spot, my friend. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> Your journey, Chris, from you were BMX before you were mm. track cycling. I have a friend who was the champion uh, Irish BMXer, but he his name is Richie Sadler, and he ended up then uh, playing for Millwall. He played. He should have been on the Ireland 2002 World Cup team, but he did his hip and had to retire. And wow! He's yeah, he's he's an amazing guy because now he's a panelist on Irish television for the Champions League, but he's also a psychotherapist, and he goes around schools talking to young boys uh, about sport and 
porn and all of these complicated things. But he's also able to talk to to pro athletes who've had their careers cut short because he he entirely reinvented himself then from uh, yeah from from BMXing. And about once a year, we talk him into playing in a seven aside tournament with us. And this is like sure, I hear you say that you you lose your sharpness after a couple of months, blah blah blah. But this guy <laughs> hadn't played a match in five years, has in a chronic hip condition, and basically you can't get the ball off him. Just the, those footballers learn. I think it's where they put their arse so that whatever hunk of meat you come up against, <laughs> you can't get your leg around there. It's an absolute waste of time. And well, it's that's, little... you're right though. I think about sports like football or you know tennis or whatever. That obviously are physically demanding, but if you have those skills, then you can, you know, a, a, an 80 year old Djokovic is going to beat a 25 year old me at tennis. You know, it's you have the skills, you don't have to run around the court, you could just stand there in one spot and he could put the ball wherever he wanted to in his 80s, I reckon. Um, but yeah, it's it, again another sport, there is a lot of skill involved, and if you know how to do it, you can you can conserve your energy and not have to run around like a, like a blue arse fly. Well, some sports have a beautiful fluke component to them, though, Chris. And I think a lot about the, I think it was the 1990 West West of Ireland Beach Angling Competition. And so my granny lived on this island off the west coast of Ireland called Ackle Island. And I happened to be down there and I was casting off the beach while the boys championship was on, who were the lads with all the gear and there are people with sponsorship deals who were 16 and uh, I caught two turbot and none of the rest of them caught a single fish. <laughs> and they ended up giving me the trophy. No. Even though I wasn't, I was in runners, I was in jeans. I didn't, they were all using lugworm. I was using mackerel. I don't want to get too into the weeds here with this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's my, uh, that's my other great sporting. I know this is misadventures and I've just been talking about my incredible success. <laughs> but this is one where I didn't even know I was in the competition and ended up yeah, coming home with the good stuff. It's like a Hollywood movie. You think you could still do the triple jumps? As we'd say, you'd never lose your sporting ability. How would triple jump now nowadays work for you? Would you would you make it to the pit? I'm not sure I'd make it there. I so my triple jumping still comes out occasionally. Do you know what it is? I mean, this is way too much information. It's some nights walking home from the pub on a totally quiet. I've I've had two pints maybe, and I'll see a a lane or a narrow turn off uh, where it's curb road curb, and I'll say part of me will be like. Bet you could still triple jump that. <laughs> and I will look up and down the road and make sure there's no one there. I imagine that I get the whole cl- crowd <laughs> rhythmically clapping. And then, <laughs> yeah, still bounce. And my triple jumping is still fine. I know it's not technically a sport, but when I was about 10 or 11, I had a few breakdance moves. And the awful thing about uh, breakdance is that at weddings, you still think you can do it. Like this, a swan dive is the one where you basically just leap up in the air onto your face. Yeah. And then a caterpillar. And you know what? You you kind of, you you pull it off and everyone's (laughs) like, wow, that guy's in his mid forties and he can still break dance. And then for the next week and a half, you realize you can't uh, lift up a bag of shopping. (laughs) You say that break dance is not a sport. You know, I'm not joking here. You know that break dancing is in, I think it's a full event at the next Olympics. If it's not... It's, yeah. it's an actual medal event, isn't it? I can't it? it's a medal event or a demonstration, but it's certainly going to be in the Olympics. So it's not too late, David, for you to have aspirations wow. for Olympic glory. I am not wearing it today. Uh, my One of my proudest T-shirts says, uh, skateboarding is a crime, not an Olympic event. <laughs> 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 and that's how I feel about breakdancing. <laughs> yeah, it kind of goes against the ethos of it all, doesn't it? I mean, come on. <gasps> I mean, I want if graffiti Olympic. gets in, if doing wild style graffiti gets in with the uh, and freestyle hip hop, then maybe I can get behind it. But what about uh, stand up comedy? That could be the Olympics. That could easily be an Olympic sport. You could have a, a you know a panel of judges, and it's you know you could have scientific. You could have the the volume with which they laugh, or you know the intensity of laughter. You could easily get in there. 
the, the I'm not sure the Latvian judge, the stern-faced Latvian judge, will enjoy my uh, sent a text song, Chris. He'd love it if you translated it. He'd love it. I'm sure. I think it might end up like Eurovision. I think you've mixed up <laughs> Eurovision and the Olympics, and I never thought I'd get to say that to Chris. So I... <laughs> Have you still oh, well. any remaining sporting aspirations or anything you'd like to try? Obviously, you've got your cycling, but is there anything else or, or, or ones you couldn't steer clear of more if you try in terms of sports? Yeah, well, the problem for me is the importance of fantasy plays in all of my sport. So I play a Monday night five-a-side game with a bunch of Hungarian taxi drivers. And you know how five-a-side games work, where originally it was your friend who's a teacher and other teachers, and then the teachers stopped playing. And then someone asked this nice taxi driver, did he want to play? And then he invites his mates. So the football game is now me and nine Hungarian taxi drivers, genuinely. (laughs) But the standard is quite, the trick with five-a-side is you need to all be about the same age. Like there's nothing worse than someone bringing their hotshot, like 17-year-old son in who absolutely humiliates (laughs) all of us. (laughs) Nutmegs and all the rest of it. But playing that game, which I think is the, the least glamorous version of football, I... I just love it. It's It makes my week to play that on a Monday night. I'm not saying I go full kit now, but I certainly <laughs> think about the player I am pretending to be while I play. It's that fantasy element. It's like riding home from the shops on my bike. It's still Phil Liggett doing uh, Tour de France commentary. It's still Phil Liggett so often doing that Stephen Roach commentary from the 1987 Tour de France. But who is this rider coming up behind? It's O'Doherty. It looks like O'Doherty. And he's got two bags of Aldi shopping (laughs) from his handlebars. So do I think I will eventually uh, turn pro with these things? Yes, absolutely. Several of these sports. I would envisage in a few years' time, everything I've done will just be at the top of the Wikipedia page. Or maybe a footnote at the bottom. It'll be before winning five Tour de France's David worked as a comedian for a while. That's all it'll say. When you're playing the Hungarian taxi drivers, who is the footballer that you are then? Uh, I like... So my my natural game was box-to-box midfielder. I used to just run and run and run. And like a sort of Roy Keane type figure. Uh, But then as you get older, you can't quite do that as much. So now I've become... More like Pirlo or one of those Italians, very cultivated sort of defense uh, uh, splitting passes. And uh, yeah, I, I, that's, I have a nice uh, a, a Diodora Italian jersey. Some nights I'll trap that out there. And uh, yeah, very, very, very classy kind of Rolls Royce of a player is how in my dreams I would describe myself. And how would the Hungarians describe you, do you think? the hungarians in fairness to them they don't have great english so they'll occasionally just be like very very good and we all just go very very good and a lot of two thumbs up like that (laughs) a few step overs i mean is there anything sadder than a 47 year old man attempting to do step overs against (laughs) a hungarian taxi driver it's a lovely image (laughs) yeah i'm gonna keep playing I'll keep I'll keep them all up now as as long as I can and yeah it's 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 thanks to mum like my mum has that because she was tennis and hockey she just has an eye for a ball which is a cliche term but she's eighty five now and we were in the park recently and I brought a set of patonk balls which she'd never played those big heavy steel balls and so you throw out the little piggy and mum's like what do I have to do. And I, I have to get it close to that. Bang, bang, both within <laughs> three three inches. So maybe, may, hopefully, my children, when they arrive, will have my mother's uh, my mother's talents. But uh, it seems to have skipped me. Is the bad news? Well, you might you might be our most accomplished sporting guest so far with what what you've done. So it's pretty impressive. So I would uh, I would dine out on most of those things still. With flukily winning a fishing competition, is that what? Uh... Yeah, the Dennis Hickey, a bit of triple jump. There's plenty there. And you know what? Hungarian taxi driving five aside world. 
when you think back to your your sporting highs as a child and these moments, whether it's a, a race or a match or whatever, if you're lucky enough to have had somebody there to film it, you look back and you realize there's literally one man and his dog standing clapping. <laughs> but your video of that cup final, the rugby, yeah. it, it pans from from your um, you know, your the try that you score to the crowd. And as you say, there's there's thousands of kids, <laughs> thousands of fans there, and they're all going absolutely wild. I mean, that's not it's not just in your head that oh, this is a big moment. It is actually a big moment. So you have achieved a huge amount, and it's uh, yeah, you're, you're very lucky that you've had all that sporting success and this amazing career as a comedian too. You big Chris, show off, stop us. <laughs> <laughs> you of all people, for goodness sake. But anyway, if you need your mountain bike fixed, I'm sure I know the correct Belgian buy and sell website where I could get those rubber rock shocks to fix those for us. Yeah, and if, if you're gigging in Bristol, if you could swing by our house, we've got at least two or three bikes that need some work doing. So that'd be quite <laughs> I'd love to. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for the time. It's really, really good to talk to you and uh, hearing about your sporting adventures more than misadventures, I'd say. You've been an absolute, it. absolute superstar of a guest. Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate your time. I, I owe you two now because you got us tickets to your uh, your show at Edinburgh a couple of years ago, and now you've come on here. So I, yeah, I owe you, I owe you two, and Matt owes you one. Yeah. I do. My main memory of that, sorry, just before I go, was uh, you uh, very chivalrously gave your coat to your wife. There was a torrential Edinburgh downpour and we ended up walking to a restaurant because all the restaurants were full. It was miles away and you were entire. So Chris Hoy enters this Edinburgh restaurant. Everyone turns around and you're basically in a wet T-shirt competition. It was uh, <laughs> it, it was as a big it, moment. It wasn't white, was it? I don't remember, but yeah, it's... Uh... <laughs> it said, the man, the legend with an arrow pointing down. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much, David. It's been brilliant to chat and uh, yeah, hope to see you soon. And we should go out for a bike ride sometime. You as well, Matt. We should get all the bikes out together. Yeah. I'll tell the Hungarian taxi drivers to join us. <laughs> Take care, Matt. Take care, David. Thanks so much, you guys. Bye. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.